0: Michelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, We hope to educate the public and decision-makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use, rather we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. It's time for the weekly news and forecast, which is pretty much the entire show now that we are still on our hiatus. Uh, so, Tyler, do you want to kick things off with our first story of the week? Yeah, I'd love to. And this is uh, probably my favorite story of all time.
1: Uh, So far So this is coming to us from MyNorthwest.com And in Washington The King County health officials voted unanimously To implement a pilot program For two safe injection sites Where people can consume illegal drugs Under medical supervision Um, It's partially based off of the Insight program In Vancouver, which we've talked about Pretty extensively uh, Which is currently the only safe injection program In North America Um, Seattle and King County officials have visited Canadian safe injection sites For advice on how to implement it and the hope is that the safe injection sites will reduce the presence of public drug consumption and cut down on overdose deaths. Um, so this is super exciting, groundbreaking, yeah. revolutionary. Like this is the wave of the future. And it's like the best news that I think I've heard in a long time, if not mm-hmm. ever. Um, you know, we've been talking about these sorts of things for so long. And we've seen proposals from Maryland to New York and, you know, even more for extending things happening in Canada. And so mm-hmm. this is just awesome to hear. And hopefully this is just the first step in in a, a long road of more and more harm reduction
0: measures that are just that just make sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and as a lot of our regular listeners probably already know, or people more involved on the safe injection side of drug policy reform, but I think it's really worth repeating is that uh, Insight only got started because uh, it was basically civil disobedience of them saying that they wanted to open this up as harm reduction. They did it without permission, just saying, we're going to do this, try to stop us, basically, to the government. And after, I believe, some big court battles, they're able to stay open. And, uh, and as you said there, Tyler, are, are still the only ones. One that, that's currently operating. So it's really fantastic to see that after all of the years of them operating, a lot of public health officials saying, "Hey, maybe this isn't such a bad idea after all. Let's figure out a way to, you know, actually implement it through the, you know, kind of normal channels." That they're finally doing it. And so after that, uh, what was really a big case of you know just activism on top of uh, the the public health side of this, that the establishments really come around and they're now giving official approval to these things to to get started. Yeah, it's it's so awesome this
1: is so exciting mm-hmm. and I, I don't think its importance can be understated so I'm glad I had a chance to talk about this and I'm glad this is kind of what we're opening with um, yeah. there is you know uh, certainly there, there it's not all good news um, mm-hmm. even as this is happening uh, there's action being taken at the state level to ban these programs throughout Washington uh, so Senator Mark Melosia has proposed legislation that will ban safe injection sites in Washington mm-hmm. uh, and arguing that they encourage drug use and they or move towards decriminalization of drugs and he might not be wrong on the second part there like maybe mm-hmm. it is <laughs> a move towards the decriminalization of drugs it's interesting right. how you know some people think that that is a bad thing yeah uh, and that's like their talking point so it's like yeah you can't really I mean, in
0: a sense it's you, decrim just in a very right. small room
1: <laughs> yeah it's a very localized mm-hmm. decriminalization um yeah. yeah like you know he's not wrong like i'm not gonna argue on that point like mm-hmm. yes like this is hopefully a step towards decriminalization but right uh anyways uh so it's, it's, not all, it's not not all good. Uh, That's unfortunate. Another thing that's interesting here, and and I don't know, this is just like based on of based off my reading of this and a few of the other articles that have come out is they haven't said anything about syringe exchanges. Um, They Mm -hmm. have like syringe exchanges are available there and they talk about, you know, uh, in Seattle, they're seeing like 19,000 syringes a day. Something oh, wow. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't say anything about whether or not this uh, particular facility is approved to do syringe exchange. Um, mm-hmm. And so I imagine that it would be like I can't, you know, it, it would seem silly if they didn't. But I also wonder if they won't just because they don't mention it. Um, right. And it's one of those things that I that I looked for specifically because I figured they'd talk about it as, you know, not only is this a safe consumption site, it's also a place where people can exchange their syringes. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, it seems like it would be such a common sense thing to combine the. This- two but you never know with government regulators sometimes they're get some weird idea in their heads about oh this that would somehow promote drug use more and right. so that's something we don't want to do so exactly uh, we'll they, have to check into that yeah
1: exactly they might arbitrarily make it uh, be two separate facilities so mm-hmm. um anyway it's just an interesting other uh, piece there but yeah. overall this is so exciting and i can't wait to see what happens
0: mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah speaking of uh Completely arbitrary distinctions by government that hurt public health. Uh, For our second story here, uh, I want to talk about some work that's actually being done by uh, Tech Freedom, which is a libertarian tech policy think tank that I actually used to work at as my day job when I lived down in DC, and now I help with a bit part time on some online work. Uh, But last week, they and a bunch of uh, right leaning groups, including libertarians and ones that are a bit more traditionally conservative, uh, they all got together to ask Congress to modify the rules on e-cigarettes that the FDA created last year. So as as we've talked about on the podcast before, including with that discussion with Jeff Steyer a few episodes ago, uh, the FDA has passed rules that make it incredibly hard to bring a new vaporizing product to market if it wasn't already for sale by February 15th, 2007. So kind of things before then that were on the shelves are grandfathered in and don't need new approval. And so this affects nearly every vaping product, since e-cigs are so new. Uh, so most of them were developed after 2007. And so this group of organizations, including Tech Freedom, is asking for that date to be moved to August 16th, 2016, which is when the rest of the regulations went into effect. So this, the basic uh, intention here is to grandfather in many more types of devices, which would then be you know, good for consumers who are used to using them and wouldn't have to go nine years back into the past uh, for what they'd be using and for public health and safety since products have improved a lot over that nine-year period, both in terms of their efficiency and also some of the small but, I mean, pretty uh, rare but large dangers of things like uh, vape pens exploding, um, which has actually happened a few times usually with, the, with those older models. And so I wanted to highlight this because it's one of those areas where free market ideals and, and activists kind of overlap with drug policy harm reduction, um, which is uh, not super common, but there are definitely some areas where it does. And so I think it's a pretty cool way to, to see where these two areas overlap, but also as this is kind of a way to get a lot of these groups involved in, in broader harm reduction using technology, which is uh, something they pretty much all agree on in a certain sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right here. Uh, this is something where uh, industry and advocates can kind of come together uh, because it's ri- it's ridiculous to limit this technology and to put people in danger because of those limitations. Uh, mm-hmm. And, of course, that, that really does play nicely with uh, the incentive of companies who are producing these things to be able to produce them the way that they want to, or at least with fewer mm-hmm. restrictions, because it still is... You know certainly not uh, ideal to even have it be uh moved to august 16th 2016 right like right. there's still plenty of things that yeah, it's, it's just really unfortunate um that there's mm-hmm. that the timestamp exists at all but this is great work um is this something that uh like you know based on your proximity to the work do you think that this is all that this is likely to happen or what's the what's kind of the outlook for everyone who's working on this sort of thing
0: I think it actually has a really good shot because, I mean, this is asking a Republican Congress to repeal a regulation from the FDA or really (laughs) to modify it. And so in a sense, I mean, that's one of the very few drug policy reforms that we can hopefully easily get through right now. So this is maybe one of the, the those easy ones that we'll be able to knock out. Um, but, you know, nothing's a sure thing, especially in Congress. I mean, even if you think that everyone's on board, even if everyone has said they're on board, that doesn't mean it'll actually turn into law. Uh, but I am pretty optimistic here. And, and, and it is cool because I think that this in the next few years is going to be a really big area where uh, drug policy and these kind of like tech libertarians can can work together, because especially in the marijuana industry, I've been seeing a lot of people saying with these new marijuana legalization bills passing or ballot initiatives that lawmakers are saying, oh, people were only talking about, you know, cannabis flower or traditional marijuana. They didn't know about vaporizers and edibles and all of these new things that are scary. And we should ban those instead. Um, So people trying to go back and gut those laws. And in a way, I mean, that's government cracking down on these new products. And I think that uh, organizations like Americans for Tax Reform and Freedom Works and uh, the National Taxpayers Union, and those sort of more conservative organizations, could actually get on board. Word. So, my story is uh, from the Office of National Drug Control
1: Policy. Uh, A memo that they sent out on January 9th encourages federal agencies to stop using the term addict and adopt person-first language. Uh, So, the memo, which is not federal legislation or any sort of binding rule, uh, it's rather guidance from the ONDCP, uh, attached a document titled Changing the Language of Addiction, which addresses the stigma surrounding people who use drugs. Um, So, the memo says... uh, uh, First quote here is we encourage executive branch agencies to consider using this guidance in your internal and public facing communications in conjunction with current medical terminology. The document attached is a research study that found that People with substance use disorders are viewed more negatively than people with physical or psychiatric disabilities. Researchers found that even highly trained substance use disorder and mental health clinicians were significantly more likely to assign blame and believe that an individual should be subjected to punitive rather than therapeutic measures when the subject of the case was referred to as a substance abuser rather than a person with a substance disorder. In a public perception study, the term abuse was also found to have a high association with negative judgments and punishment. So this is really super important and it's something um, and it's really awesome to see it coming from the federal government. Grassroots activists, people who are impacted by this work have been saying this for a long time and it's really great to see it hit the top. Um, it is kind of unfortunate but understandable that it's not a mandate or anything. Um, you know, I, I'm sure that depending on what kind of work and where they are and and who's running it, some agencies may be very slow to respond to this and and many may have already been doing this. Um, And so I actually found this out from my partner who works at a public health agency in Denver. And, you know, they've been doing this since they opened uh, as, you know, avoiding the term addict and, and, you know, substance abuse, that sort of thing. Um, But anyways, it's really interesting to see. I think it'll be interesting to see what the incoming administration has to say, if anything. Uh, It's interesting that this was a memo and, like, not, like, an executive order or something that can be repealed, but rather, you know, this is, like, in their letter, they're like, this is just guidance, and this is, these are best practices. So, I imagine that folks who are running these sorts of public agencies are just going to take their pre-existing political biases into account, and, like, those who would be into it probably will use it, and those who wouldn't probably won't. And there may be nothing that the incoming administration could do to change that unless they themselves, you know, make an, make some sort of executive order that you have to use a certain type of language. Um,
0: yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that was going to be my comment because the timing of this is so interesting. Right. I mean, since it just came out shortly before the Trump administration was coming in, it seems almost like it's aimed more at... Uh, trying to influence the incoming administration when, uh, rather than actually trying to, to change much with the people right. that this was directed actually to, um, just because, the, you know, the current federal government. And it is almost too bad uh, that it wasn't an executive order because, in a sense, it would have been just one nice data point to see if that was something that ended up, you know, getting repealed by a new executive order or thrown out. Um, right now, it's since it is non-binding, Um, There isn't as much that we could point to just saying, hey, unfortunately, the new administration just threw this out. But still, if they don't listen to it, if they keep using addict uh, rather than that kind of person first language that the ONDCP was currently pushing for, that could at least be something important to to keep in mind. And also, I think this is just really nice because it shows that whether or not we're winning the war on policy, which or or the the policy front of this war, uh, I, I think it is important to show that we the drug policy reform movement is totally winning the rhetoric side uh, just because ONDCP and all of these government organizations, even if they keep pushing these bad policies, I mean, they won't call it the war on drugs anymore. Now they aren't using the term addict. It really shows that they recognize that our message resonates a lot more. It's frustrating when they try to co-opt it. But on the other hand, I think that the the whole idea behind these is that using this person first language leads to better policies. And so over time, it is actually going to have a a good effect if the federal government is thinking of people as people who are addicted to drugs rather than just addicts. Exactly. And, And and that's the last thing I really want to end on here is that the really
1: critical thing is that like trained professionals, you know, mental health clinicians were likely that were like were found to be likely to assign blame and believe that people should be subjected to punitive like jail sentences rather than therapeutic measures depending just based on the switch in language. Um, And so you know, for people who professionally do this and like day in and day out, if they can be influenced in such a drastic way uh, based on language, I imagine that public perception and like you know, uh, decision makers and lawmakers can also be influenced. So you're right. Like, like language is really important, um, and this is something I've always believed, uh, or I have believed for a long time. Uh, and I think this is like r- really awesome, demonstrable evidence that that is the case. And it's a great message coming from the federal government that I hope sticks around
0: uh, with an incoming administration that may be more hostile to those sorts of things. Absolutely. And uh, for our final story here uh, is yet another focus on Rodrigo Duterte, uh, who, as our common listeners would know, uh, is president of the Philippines. And he, uh, during his speech last week, he said something new and even more worrying than everything he said before. Uh, and that was that if the nation's drug problem became, quote, something really very vi- virulent, I will declare martial law, end quote. So saying that if it gets bad enough, uh, that he is willing to invoke martial law in order to what he claims is crackdown on the, the nation's drug problem. So he even went on to say, here's another quote, no one can stop me. My country transcends everything else, even the limitations, uh, unquote, speaking of, of human rights limitations and constitutional limitations on this ability. So th- this has sparked a ton of opposition from officials throughout the country uh, since their constitution says that the president can only declare martial law under two different conditions, one being if there's a foreign invasion, uh, the other being a domestic rebellion, uh, and both of those in order to protect public safety. And this is a particularly sore spot for a lot of people uh, because the Philippines was actually under martial law fairly recently from 1972 to 1981, so almost 10 years, under a dictator named Ferdinand Marcos so many people who are actually in public office right now were prisoners under marcos's reign so this is particularly important for them and duterte has since walked back his comments when everyone you know condemned him for saying this claiming that he uh wasn't actually interested in the idea kind of was just talking that sort of thing that he does every time uh but it is pretty clear based off of some of his administration statements which i may get to in a second uh just that he doesn't actually seem any less interested in this and is just kind of uh using technical language to try to avoid blame here
1: wow that's uh terrifying um also doesn't seem to be out of character and uh wow That is really that's really something else. Um, You know, I think something that's really interesting is that the way that. The way that he has gone about his drug policy has brought him to the forefront, I think, of a lot of uh, like American uh, liberals, uh, people who tend to like, you know, or, or just reformers in general. Right. In a way that I think many other dictators around the world. Uh, probably, or or authoritarian leaders, even if he hasn't quite hit the dictator level yet, um, haven't. I think it's just interesting because the way that he handled uh, drug policy was, like, super inflammatory and, like, touched on a nerve that a lot of folks are really close to, and I think that, like, if this was, like, in and of itself, like, just a story isolated without the drug policy component, we probably wouldn't know about it or hear about it from our circles unless we were, you know, particularly interested in international relations and any even then, we probably wouldn't be making this podcast. We'd be someone else, right? Um, so it's just really interesting the way that, like, drug policy helps bring to light other global issues and, like, societal issues um, to people who might otherwise not, uh, not get into it.
0: Yeah. And in a sense, it is a really scary thing. I mean, on its face, it is. But thinking about it uh, a lot more has made me worried because it's basically the logical extension of of treating drugs as a public safety issue. So, I mean, treating it instead as a crime, instead of a public health issue, if you suddenly criminalize huge swaths of the population, I mean, that's something that martial law seems like it would be a solution for. Because if these are, if you, if you consider drug use to be a violent crime inherently, then there are all these vol- violent criminals all throughout your country uh, who are going to harm other people by sharing drugs with them, uh, who, who are committing this terrible crime. And then it makes it so easy to crack down. I mean, it's very similar to what's pretty well known, at least in our circles here in uh, the United States, about Nixon trying to say, okay, you know, we can't criminalize being black or being against the war, uh, so we're going to criminalize drugs and try to tie black people and, and anti-war activists to those drugs in order to criminalize them. And uh, martial law is basically just a logical extension there. Um, we've got stronger institutions, I hope, here in the U.S., uh, but it is kind of a scary thing about... Who knows if, if this is in our future, whether in the next four years or you know the next 10, uh, but it's something that we really need to fight back against the, the public safety, the crime uh, perspective of drugs. Otherwise, it really opens you up to, to this sort of uh, abuse.
1: So I think that takes us into our uh, headlines, if you're all set, Sam. Mm hmm. Excellent. Cool. So I'll get us started here. Uh, so the first headline comes out of Germany. Uh, the lower house of Germany's parliament has voted and approved a measure to legalize cannabis for medical purposes in the country.
0: And next, as planned, D.C. cannabis activists gave out thousands of free joints in the nation's capital on Friday in order to have people smoke out Trump's inauguration. Organizers went above and beyond the 4,200 joints that they'd planned, uh, with Adam Eidinger saying that they gave out over 8,000. That's a lot of joints. Um, With
1: marijuana now legal for those 21 and older, Rep. uh, Paul McMurdy uh, from Massachusetts sees an opportunity to revive a measure that failed last session to raise the tobacco purchasing age in, in Massachusetts to match that of other legal
0: drugs. And El Chapo, the notorious drug cartel leader from Mexico, has been extradited to the United States. His charges include murder, drug trafficking, and money laundering, and he is also facing additional indictments for his ties to the cartel
1: word. And moving on into our weekly forecast, Uh, mine is about the 60th Commission on Narcotic Drugs, which which will be the week of March 12th, a little bit before the SSDP 2017 conference. So stay tuned for updates from
0: SSDP and the rest of civil society's delegation. And for my forecast is uh, is one I'm excited about, and it's that tomorrow, which is January 23rd, if you're listening to this podcast the day that it came out, is SSDP's birthday. Um, and, and this does come with a little disclaimer, since SSDP kind of has two different birthdays, uh, the more officially recognized one and the one that we celebrate as an organization being October 1st, 1998, when a group of drug policy reformers at RIT first decided on the name Students for Sensible Drug Policy. They then organized for a few years, and this second birthday that I'm talking about right now, January 23rd, 2001, marks the day SSDP became a legally recognized nonprofit organization. So it's a bit of a birthday, a bit of a major milestone, but either way, Definitely a good time to reflect on how far far this organization's come and all that we've been able to do in the pretty short time that we've been around. So take this day to thank an SSDP or call some of your, uh, your old friends from your chapter, or better yet, make a donation at www.ssdp.org.
1: I'll take this opportunity to thank you, Sam, uh, for being a, an inspirational part of my chapter and also an excellent director on the board of our directors.
0: Why, thank you. <laughs> um,
1: so I think that about wraps up today's show. Again, it's just the weekly news and forecasts uh, for the partial hiatus, which is ending in the next few weeks. And we'll be back with full episodes soon. But as always, uh, you know, there's so much going on in the news and upcoming and drug policy. So if we miss anything, please send us an email or reach out to us on Facebook. Uh, you can reach us at drugs at gmail.com or any of our social media accounts. We'd love to cover any news stories that are important to you or any upcoming uh, events that you've got going on. Uh, We're always happy to uh, take content submissions from our listeners. So thanks for uh, tuning in to this hiatus episode of This Week in Drugs, and we'll see you next week. on a makeshift ship you are adrift on a makeshift
0: ship i am adrift on a makeshift Wanna make a chef, chef